Hi, welcome to the Parenting Reframe Podcast. I am Elbiona Rakipi, your host. I'm a former teacher, a parent, currently a pediatric speech and language pathologist, and I'm a writer. I've worked with thousands of children and families throughout the last 20 years, and I have learned so much. On this podcast, we'll approach parenting from a curious place. We'll ask questions and get answers, explore new ideas, unpack the unconscious beliefs and expectations we hold on to about parenting, and reframe what it means to parent. We'll search for solutions to some of our biggest parenting challenges, set aside judgments, and find our way through this wild journey. My hope is that this podcast is a space where parents can feel seen, heard, and supported. Welcome aboard, and let's reframe together. Welcome back to another episode of the Parenting Reframe Podcast. I am so honored and so blessed to have our next guest here today. I have Dr. Daniels from Wayne State University. And Dr. Daniels, before we even start, we're going to touch on a lot of things today, parents. We're going to talk about stuttering. We're going to talk about stuttering and what to kind of look for in younger children. And then we're going to talk a little bit about Dr. Daniel's research because I think it's really profound and the work he's doing is so important. So before I jump in, Dr. Daniels, can you go ahead and just introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a little bit about who you are and the incredible work you do? Thank you so much, Albiana. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm Derek Daniels. I am a speech language pathologist. I'm an associate professor in the Communication Sciences and Disorders Department at Wayne State University. I've been at Wayne State for 16 years now. I'm originally from Houston, Texas. I'm a person who stutters, and I'll talk a little bit about my story a little bit later, but that personal ex experience led me to want to be a speech-language pathologist. So I went to the University of Houston for my master's degree. I was a public school clinician for a while before I moved from Texas to Ohio, and I went to Bowling Green State University for my PhD where I was able to study and research stuttering a little bit more. And after Bowling Green, I came to Wayne State in 2007, and I've been there ever since. But I teach students, I supervise students in our in-house speech and language clinic, and I also work clinically with people who stutter through our clinic. I'm also part of Camp Shoutout, which if you don't know Camp Shoutout, it's a really nice um, camp for youth who stutter ages eight to 18. So I participate in that every summer. Um, I attend a lot of conferences, lots of workshops, lots of self-help groups around stuttering. I do all things stuttering. <laughs> so um, I have a wide variety of um, interests. My research focuses a lot on the lived experience of what it means to be a person who stutters. Oh, I love it. And I can't wait to talk to you a little bit more about that too. And you are the person to do it. I mean, I will say this to you that you know, on a side note, so when I was in graduate school, you know, I was fortunate enough to have you for the three years that I was there, be it as a professor or a clinical director and or supervisor. And I will say I felt like graduate school for me, at least, and I'm sure many feel this way, but it was so incredibly hard. And it should be right. Like it, it's hard right. for the right reasons. But you were really like human form of sunshine for all of the students wow. like you wow. you were like our space where we were like okay it's it's dr daniel's class we can just breathe right now we can <laughs> take yes. a breath and just really enjoy what we're going to learn and so you are somebody when i get to watch you and when others get to watch you we see somebody doing exactly what they're meant to do and with such grace and so I'm so happy to be able to have this conversation with you, but that is what you meant to me for those years when I was at Wayne Thank State. Thank you. And I so really appreciate that. <laughs> I'm sure others feel the same. So I, I know that the work you're doing is just so meaningful. So I kind of wanted to start off 
in a couple of different areas. Like one is I thought we could just touch on pediatrics for a minute and talk a little bit about stuttering in terms of the pediatric population. But can we just start with like, what is stuttering? Like for somebody who is listening to this and just wondering like what, what qualifies a stutter or somebody being described as having a stutter? I'm glad you asked that question because there's a lot of misinformation about stuttering. Stuttering is largely misunderstood in the larger society. And what that means is that because of all of the misinformation about stuttering, it leads to a lot of confusion. It leads to a lot of difficulty. It leads to a lot of even unfair treatment towards people who stutter. There's a lot of public stigma towards stuttering and that public stigma can lead to self-stigma for people who stutter. So let's start with stuttering. So um, I'm going to give you, I guess, a couple of definitions here. One is a more traditional definition. So stuttering is, it's a neurophysiological condition with genetic contributions. So stuttering is a neurophysiological condition that affects the flow of speech production such that the person knows exactly what they want to say. It's not a language problem, but there are moments where they experience involuntary disruptions in their speech. So people who stutter when they speak, they feel the sensation of feeling stuck and not able to move forward. So that can look a lot of different ways. So a person might repeat sounds like pizza. They might repeat syllables like so sound repetition, syllable repetition, sometimes single syllable whole word repetitions, my, 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 my teddy bear. A person may prolong or like stretch a sound. They may block on sounds like that, but there's no sound coming out. So we call those the core behaviors of stuttering. Sometimes a person though, they might repeat phrases like my name is, my name is, my name is, my name is Derek, because they anticipate getting stuck on the next sound. They might have a lot of interjections um, one after another. So that's the behavioral piece of stuttering. And as people continue to live with stuttering, they may react to those disfluencies in ways that are negative. So a person might blink their eyes, they may nod their head, they may move their arms around, they may have a lot of secondary behaviors as a result of struggling with um, the core behaviors. And then people may think and feel a certain way about their stuttering and their, themselves. So. You know, some people who stutter may have negative feelings about themselves or depending on their environment, they may, may, may have positive feelings about themselves. But when we talk about stuttering, I think the core behavior is this feeling of feel this feeling that I'm going to be stuck. But what I also want to say is that stuttering is highly variable. So people who stutter don't stutter all the time. And that adds to confusion where people think it's an emotional disorder or it's a psychological disorder. It's not. It's neurophysiological with genetic contributions. But stuttering doesn't happen. People who stutter don't stutter all the time. There are different degrees to um, how a person might stutter. Everyone has different patterns to their stuttering. But again, it's that core feeling of being stuck. Yeah. Um, so that's a more of a traditional definition of stuttering. In light of neurodiversity, we're now moving towards looking at stuttering as just a difference in how one talks. We're looking at it as part of speech diversity. 
So I think how a person defines stuttering can be very individual. But I guess if we're looking clinically um, at what stuttering is, it's a neurophysiological condition that affects the flow of speech production. And people who stutter have these disfluencies, these moments of feeling stuck in their speech um, when they communicate, when they talk. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's a really perfect explanation of it. I mean, obviously, it's something that we know. And I love the idea of the neurodiversity piece of like, this is just how I speak. And that's quite all right. And let's look at how can we as a society and as a culture really adjust the way we are as listeners and not hold this expectation that everybody's supposed to sound a certain way or be a certain way. So it really falls into that Absolutely. bigger you know, picture idea of like, how can we all evolve versus trying to correct the thing that doesn't seem to be doing what the norm or what the majority is doing. So I think, absolutely, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of beauty and grace in that for sure. So for a parent who might be seeing their three or four year old start to demonstrate some of those behaviors, those surface behaviors that you mentioned, like the blocks or the prolongations or the repetitions, what's the best way to respond or what's the best course of action or is it to not do anything? Again, great question because there's also a lot of confusion around this too. And I say that because many parents may see these behaviors in their children. And sometimes they even take their children to, they'll take their child to the family physician and the family physician might say, well, it's normal, they'll just outgrow it. So here's what I wanna say. With talking, all children will have disfluencies when they talk. It's just a part of normal development. So you might see kids struggling to put a message together they might revise a phrase. You know, when kids are learning to put language together, they're going to be disfluent. Stuttering is very different. So again, with children who stutter, if you see those sound repetitions or syllable repetitions, or those prolongations where sounds are stretched out or blocks, um, those are not disfluencies that we would consider to be typical disfluencies around putting a message together. Okay. So if parents, I think, see those disfluencies, and also certainly if the child is reactive to those disfluencies, they should consult a speech-language pathologist who has experience working with children who stutter. The speech pathologist will do an evaluation and then they will determine the best needs of the child. So when young preschool children are beginning to stutter, we don't take a wait and see approach. We don't take an ignore approach. We have the child evaluated by a therapist, a speech language pathologist who's certified and who has experience working with stuttering. Again, they'll do the evaluation and they will determine the best course of action because it looks different for every child. I mean, some children may have a family history of stuttering that's very common. And depending on how the child presents, Therapy may be recommended. Therapy may not be recommended. It may just be recommended that the parent just try some strategies. But the therapy itself is going to vary depending on the needs of a child. But I do encourage all parents to seek out a speech pathologist with experience in stuttering if they're noticing those um, types of behaviors. But, you know, there's no need to panic. I know we'll get into strategies a little bit later, but I think stuttering is nothing to panic about. It's nothing to worry about. You know, seek out a therapist. 
they'll do the evaluation and together they'll come up with the, the therapy plan. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think it's you highlighted something that's so important that I experience. I do mostly evaluations um, with the pediat in the pediatric setting with the preschool population. And I do not consider myself somebody who is specialized in stuttering. And so we have people that we refer to if we find that that is the core issue. And a lot of times a parent will say, but we really wanted to come here. Or we really, and I'll say, I know, but I'm yeah. really not the best person for your child, right? So that's really important that even within our scope of practice, myself as a speech and language pathologist, there are so many areas that we can use this license, right? But there is, it's very different when you are specialized in something or when you really hone in on, on a certain area and really do a lot of your work there. It's going to be a much better fit for a child or an individual who needs that type of therapy. So I know one of the things that comes up a lot in evaluations, if I'm noticing a child demonstrate some of the behaviors that you mentioned are definitely those secondary behaviors. And they can be subtle. They can be really subtle. I remember asking a parent over the phone when we were just kind of going over some case history saying, are you noticing any secondary behaviors? And I described a few and she said, oh, no, not at all. He, like, he doesn't seem bothered when he is stuttering and he seems fine. He's just repeats, you know, sounds. It was basically syllable repetitions. But then when he came in for his evaluation, now, mind you, he was in a setting where it wasn't familiar to him. He didn't know me. And although we were playing and having a great time and I did all that I could to make sure that he was comfortable, I wasn't mom or dad or somebody that was a familiar conversation partner. So what presented very quickly was we saw secondary behaviors. We saw right. the stuttering increase. We saw blocks. We saw prolongations in addition to repetitions. So when as soon as the parents came in and they said, when he clenches and opens his fists like that, is that what you mean, isn't it? And I said, that's exactly yeah. right, right? Or he would take a toy and he would bang it on the table repeatedly right. while he was trying to get the sound out, back to that point of feeling stuck. And so to a lot of parents, I think they're expecting that response to the stutter to seem aggravated or frustrated. And while it is, it's just showing itself in different ways, right? So for that child, it was either banging or opening and closing his um, hands or making fists and opening back up. So... We got him in, in good hands and he's doing well, but I think it's important to note that sometimes those secondary behaviors are not going to look exactly like you might think and just really look at everything and then look to see what's kind of coming up in that instance. So if a parent says to you like, oh, I'm noticing they're doing it at home, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of speech and language pathologists might say is like to really slow down, to not interrupt the child while they're in the middle of a disfluency or a stutter and then allowing them to finish their thought. How do you feel about that and the idea of like really allowing the space to kind of just give that child room to say what they need to say? Yes, I think one of the most important things that parents can do is make space for the child to talk. Because one of the things that we know about stuttering is that stuttering is very situational. Stuttering can fluctuate depending on what the situation is and who you're talking to. But stuttering can also be triggered by time pressure. When people who stutter feel time pressure or when they feel like they're in a situation where there is an expectation that they should not stutter, it actually confounds the, well, I want to say problem. It, it, it triggers more stuttering. Mm -hmm. So what I'll say is it's very important to be patient. I think it's very important to create space for the child to talk because we know that stuttering is situational. We know that time pressure can exacerbate stuttering. And when the 
person feels like they're under expectations to not stutter, it can trigger more stuttering and discomfort for the person. So it's um, being patient. It's being attentive. It's being attentive to the child. It's being attentive to what the child is saying and not focusing on the manner in which they're saying it. So it's being attentive. It's being a good listener. And um, so that's the idea of space. And also parents can sort of model easy talking for their child. Um, sometimes we refer parents to Mr. Rogers as an example of what easy talking is like. It's not turtle speech. It's not abnormally slow speech. It's just using more pauses. Um, so that's something the parents can do. But we want the environment to be as supportive as possible. And we want the environment to be free of communicative demands for the child. You know, I don't think that parents need to actively correct or modify every single thing that the child was saying, because ultimately we want children to love talking. We want them to enjoy talking. And yes, some children do outgrow stuttering. Some children don't, but whether they do or whether they don't, we want them to enjoy talking. So it's not necessary to be corrective to the child's speech. It's not necessary to say, say that again. It's just being attentive to what the child is saying and less attentive to how they're saying it. Yeah, I love that. And I think also, you know, you you said something that was really kind of important there. And I think I see this a lot, be it if I'm working with parents as a speech and language pathologist or if I'm coaching parents through different challenges. And what I think also we need to be aware of as a parent is like the stress we're holding right. on to and what our energy is bringing to that exchange. So mean you might not be correcting yes. your child, yeah. but if your facial expression completely changes, if your body tightens up, if you sigh, if you kind of panic or have this feeling that starts to get expressed through your body physically, Absolutely. they sense that, right? They completely sense that. So back to that idea of, you know, how are we responding? It isn't just in the words that we're using, like, oh, don't try that again or slow down. I think there yes. is always a tendency to tell a child to take a deep breath, you know, right? Like we hear that a lot and it's like, that that's fine, but that's not, you know, um, Again, back to your point, like we just can let them say it the way they need to say it and not necessarily have to go in and seem like that something is necessarily wrong. Yeah, you just reminded me when you said that um, there are three phrases that I think can be very simplistic um, and they're well intended, but they're not particularly helpful for people who stutter. So it's slow down. Mm -hmm. It's one. Take a breath is another. And just think about what you want to say. Take some thinking time. Because remember, stuttering is not a problem with language. It's not that the person needs to think of what they want to say. They know what they want to say. The difficulty is sometimes they just feel stuck when they talk. So slowing, slow down, think of what you want to say, take a breath. Those are simplistic phrases that people who stutter hear a lot that I think kind of minimizes the experience. Exactly. And I think when we don't just look at it with a let it be kind of approach and just more of acceptance and we're we're saying things like slow down or give it some time or think about what you want to say, it assumes blame. Ah, uh, yes. Like it, it assumes like, oh, clear, you know, you just weren't thinking long enough. That's why you stuttered. If you just think longer, you'll be able to get it out much more easily. And so and then again, if you're the individual who is in that position where it is a neurological issue and you can't, yes. you know what you want to say and do, it would just compound that into 
being like, I'm just not going to say whatever it was I wanted to say five minutes ago. So you can see where that would discourage that communication piece for sure. So I love that. I love that because that is exactly what people go to. Take a deep breath, slow down. Let's think about it. And I think for me, what I find in talking to parents is that what they're actually responding to, too, is one, their own sort of insecurity and stress around the idea that their child might have this challenge and it might go away and it might not. And so there's some uncertainty there. And then I think the other piece of it is that they are responding to what might be secondary behaviors. So when you see your child in distress as a parent, there is often a kind of jump to fix it kind of a response. And that's not always necessary. So again, in that need to fix, you're probably doing more harm than good. Like, and that's the best thing you can really do is just kind of practice patience and, and really just be there for them. Absolutely. And one of the things I um, just popped in my head is that I want to just make sure I clarify for your listeners is that when we say that stuttering is neurological and when we say that stuttering is neurophysiological, we're not talking about brain damage. We're not talking about that there's anything abnormal. What we're talking about is that the, the child is just more vulnerable to having disfluencies in their speech. So we're not talking about anything that's really wrong. I think sometimes when people hear neurological and neurophysiological, they may think brain damage or something's really, really wrong with the brain. It's not. So uh, we're just saying that um, the brain is just more vulnerable to having disfluencies in the person's speech. So there's no need to panic over, you know, the fact that it's neurological or neurophysiological. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for making that distinction, yeah. too, because, you know, if you run to Dr. Google and start to look yes. these things up, it is right. exactly what starts. I know we right. work with so many children who have childhood apraxia of speech. And um, yes. if you look that up, too, it often gets confused with apraxia in adults who have suffered some type of a brain injury. And so it reads as brain damage. I mean, multiple articles will cite it incorrectly. And so I often have to explain the same thing to parents. Like it it does not mean brain damage. It does not mean something's wrong. It's it's really, we want to be very clear about that. So it can present in in many situations. So thank you for that. Okay. So I wanted to ask you this, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier before we started recording, but just this idea, one of the things that you teach on, and I was going to talk about this in a bit about, you know, I remember in graduate school, you brought three individuals who stuttered to talk to us as a group. And it was really such a profound experience because their experiences of how they talked about the way people responded to their stutter and how they were treated and how difficult it was, like tasks that we believe to be simple, like phone calls or yes. um, holding a job where you have to be communicative and and maybe people look at you like something's wrong when you stutter so they don't treat you in a kind way or they assume something's wrong. And so a lot of stigma around that. And it really was so eye-opening to hear their stories and to really understand what their experiences were like. So can you talk a little bit about when we would think about teaching coping strategies or like when not to, because what we want to really encourage is we want to encourage the person who stutters to feel confident. And we also want to help the society understand that it's really on us to be more accepting and to be more open and wanting to really give space to people who might speak differently than we do. Yeah, you know, I think it's always an individual choice. So on the one extreme, you have the person should just do everything they can to try and not stutter. On the other extreme, you have it's just all society and it should be about all acceptance. I always float somewhere in the middle. So what I do is I like to educate the people I work with about stuttering. I like to educate them about stigma to know what stigma is. We talk about microaggressions. We talk about when something is unfair treatment. We talk about all of that. 
And then I say, you know, people who stutter, you know, sometimes choose to make changes to their speech. And I think that that's not a problem if, if, it's, if it's something that you choose to do. So you never have to make a change to your speech. You never have to modify that. It's always your choice. So we do go over some strategies for modifying their tension. We do go over some strategies for having easier speaking patterns, because I will say that for people who stutter, sometimes stuttering can be a challenge for them. And sometimes they want some strategies for speaking easier. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think what's problematic is the expectation that you have to do that. It's the expectation that your speaking has to be within a certain fluency level. That's where the problem is. But people choosing to make changes of their own choice, knowing that, you know, this wider perspective, that there's stigma and that they don't have to, I think that that's okay. So mm. um, I think, you know, so the question is, when should a person be taught a coping strategy? I always like to let people know what all of their options are. Yeah. And then they can decide for themselves what they want to use and when they want to use it. So there is a discussion about stigma. There is a discussion about acceptance. There is a discussion about advocacy. And then there are also discussions around strategies for making your talking easier if you choose to do that. Because what I don't want to do is contribute to this idea that the person who stutters, they feel like they have to conceal all the time or make a change all the time. So, you know, you may be in a restaurant, the person may give you, they may give you like a funny look or they may say something that's like a snippy comment, you know, that could be a time to actually educate that person on what stuttering is. That may be a time to stand up and advocate for yourself. You never have to subject yourself to stigma and to microaggression. So I think people who stutter should definitely be equipped with the knowledge and the skills for advocacy when they need to. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think it's always a personal choice about what a person decides to do. I always tell people, you know, you're talking and your communication is between you and you. You get to decide how you want to present. Yeah. And that's it's just a personal individual choice. I, as a therapist, can't tell you, you have to do something all the time. Sure. Oh, I love that. And I think it's an important message. And I'm so glad that conversation is shifting because it wasn't that way, you know, maybe 10 years ago, we wouldn't have been saying right. that. It was definitely looking at like, correct, correct, correct. And so now right. we're getting a little bit of a different point of view on it. And I think that's so important. So can you describe what are some common microaggressions that you have ex either experienced yourself or that people you've worked with experience? Yeah, so microaggression. So what I'll say about microaggressions is sometimes microaggressions may not be intended to be a microaggression. So um, one of the phrases I hear, I even hear it in the media, I hear from newscasters is, I didn't stutter, did I? You know, so there was like a conversation where um, between two newscasters and the newscaster say, no, um, I didn't stutter, you know, as if to suggest that people lie when yes. they stutter right. or they're nervous when they stutter. So um, or they're unclear, right? Or they're unclear. Yeah. So did I stutter? That's a microaggression. Or you sounded so well today. Oh, my gosh. You didn't stutter once when you said that. It's a microaggression. So that means that when I stutter, something must be bad. 
or, um, right. you know, I get this from people all the time, but you don't really stutter that much, but your stuttering isn't really that bad. You know, those are microaggressions. A microaggression yeah. is anything that suggests that fluency is the gold standard and stuttering is a bad thing. And so I think those yeah. are some very common microaggressions um, that you might hear. Sometimes the person might think they're being humorous when they're not. So a lot of people hear people say, you know, oh, did you forget your name? You know, mm-hmm. that's a very direct microaggression. Right, right. Well, I remember you telling us, too, that for people who stutter, that that is actually a very common place where you might see a stutter or disfluency is when you introduce yourself. Yes, because, you know, I think a lot of that is because the person, the last thing a person wants to do is stutter on their name. Mm -hmm. So that automatically is going to create this sort of um, approach avoidance um, thing. But also, that's a very time pressure situation. So my name is Derek, and what's your name? Yeah. You know, it's a very time-pressured uh, situation, too. So names tend to be difficult. The phone tends to be difficult. Things like addresses, um, things that you can't word substitute tend to be more difficult. Yeah. For people yeah, who say Yeah, sure. I remember you saying that. So I wanted to know, I wanted you to just share a little bit about your own story. I mean, I think you are remarkable in the work that you're doing, and you're obviously somebody who does... You know, you just said at the beginning, you're an individual who stutters. So I think you bring a balance to it and that you're looking at it through the lens of like what it means to be a person who stutters. And you're also highly intelligent. So you're looking at it through this other lens of research and what's new and what's developing. And so talk to me a little bit about just your own story. What have some of the challenges been and what I mean, ultimately, I know it it allowed you to pursue this field, but what were some of the harder moments I'd probably say for my own story, I was the king of hiding and the king of concealment. Mm. So I've been stuttering for as long as I can remember talking. And I remember people around me just saying, just say what you want to say. Or, you know, and I never really understood why my words always got stuck. I just knew that whenever I was trying to say what I want to say, like people said, it was never that easy. Being in school, you have to go around, you know, the teacher will have every student to read a paragraph. And so what I would do is I would count how many people were ahead of me and I would mm-hmm. count how many paragraphs they were. So I would try to anticipate like what I would read. And so I wasn't really listening to what was going on. I was just practicing what I had to read. And sometimes I would be wrong and I would, yeah. I would be up at the wrong paragraph. And so people would turn around. Sometimes they would look or make like a, like they would laugh or sometimes the teacher would skip over me. So, you know, going through school, I think I was always afraid of public speaking. I was always afraid to give oral presentations. Anything that involved talking in front of people always gave me anxiety. But I think the reason for that is because I didn't have any knowledge about why no one ever sat me down and explained to me why my talking was the way that it was, number one. Number two, I didn't really have the right kinds of support systems um, available to me. So I kind of, I felt like I maybe fell through the cracks a little bit um, growing up. So anything and everything I could do to try and conceal my stuttering is what I did all of the way grade school, even through college. I mean, I went to a college that didn't have speech pathology. I didn't really learn about that until my graduate training. So I would do whatever I could to get out of presentations Again, the king of concealment. So I think that's why I'm really big on awareness and I'm really big on advocacy. So 
teachers can do a lot of good by making their classrooms safe spaces for children who stutter. Parents can do a lot of good by making the home environment a safe space. Parents can be advocates for their children when their children can't be advocates for themselves. So I'm really big on education, really big on advocacy. I would probably say my turning point was when I was in my graduate program and I was learning more about stuttering. I was also reading more about stuttering, but a lot of my difficulty, I think, lied in judgment from other people. What is the other person going to think? So I eventually had to learn that I wasn't the problem, that the problem was the problem. And I, was, I wasn't doing anything wrong. And so I think once I started to really think more deeply about that, then I think a shift sort of started to happen and I began to accept myself more as a person who stutters and also just meeting other people who stutter and, you know, joining groups like the National Stuttering Association where I could be, where, you know, in those spaces, stuttering is normalized. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And I think actually, like, while you're saying that, too, and I was going to ask you what was your turning point and you started to say it, but was there somebody who kind of allowed you to see it in a different way? Because I can't believe you got all the way to graduate school before you started to learn how to advocate for yourself, right? That feels so long to go on that way. Like, was there a moment, a person, even a, a someone you heard and thought, oh, my gosh, they stutter, too? Or what? what exactly was that like? I'm trying to, th you know, I think there was just a lot of, there was just a lack of awareness. For the most part, people around me weren't being mean. They weren't being um, intentionally, um, you know, it was just more a lack of understanding. But I remember in college, um, I had a, um, there was a friend of mine in college. Um, he also was a person who stuttered, although we never really talked about it though. But he always seemed to be so confident when he was speaking. And I always um, was the opposite. And so I wonder, what's the difference between why is, why does he seem to be so confident with his stuttering? And I seem to be so bothered by it. And I think we did have one conversation and he said, whatever you say, you just have to say it. But that's really where I started to think more about culture and about could this be an issue of culture? Or could this be an issue of how talking and stuttering could be valued? I mean, I've started to think about that, but I can't really think of a specific person who really encouraged me directly about my stuttering prior to graduate school. Yeah. I mean, no one comes to mind immediately. I mean, that's amazing because really your your whole life is really dedicated to doing this work. And, you know, the fact that you went from being this child who concealed and hid to a professor who speaks on multiple stages now and yes. <laughs> really has a career in speaking, right? Like the exact thing you were avoiding your whole life is exactly what came to fruition. And rightfully so, right? Rightfully so. You're so good at it. And I mean, for people who don't know you, you're a fantastic professor. I mean, you're very good at teaching and speaking and you're humorous and you're easy to listen to. And I mean, all of those things. So I think you found your way and that's really remarkable. So I guess as a final question, what would you have hoped you had? You kind of touched on this when you explained it. And how does that shape the way you encourage people now and parents now to sort of show up for and, and educators and clinicians, right? Because a lot of clinicians do the same thing you mentioned earlier too, like slow down, take a deep breath, right? There's a lot of misinformation there. So what's sort of the bigger takeaway that you would want people to know both from 
young Derek and from yourself now having the knowledge that you do, what would be the biggest takeaway? Well, I guess I would say that is it's going to be okay. That yes, I know from the outside, from an observer's perspective, when you see someone stutter, you know, it may look like it's something that needs to be fixed. It may look like it's something that's abnormal. It may look like it's something that struggled. And yes, sometimes stuttering can be a struggle. I'm certainly not denying that. But I think the biggest takeaway is that we have to really offer support to people. We really have to be mindful of ways that we may be adding to stigma or discrimination. And there's nothing wrong but just having conversations um, around talking and having conversations around stuttering. I think, you know, if people understood stuttering more when I was growing up, I think it would have had an easier time. Yeah. I think that's probably a, the biggest takeaway is that really understanding stuttering, which also I should also mention here because we talked earlier about there's so much misinformation about stuttering. If people want information about stuttering, they have to go to the right places. So they should go to the National Stuttering Association. They have a website. They should go to the Stuttering Foundation of America. There's a website. Friends. Friends is the National Association for Young People Who Stutter. They have a website. And then Stuttering Therapy Resources. So those, I think, are the places that people can go to get the right information. Otherwise, just going to Google, I think, you know, you're not, you don't know what you're going to find. But those resources existed. I mean, the National Stuttering Association certainly existed when I was growing up, but I didn't know about it. I didn't find it. So yeah. I really didn't have that level of support. But I think going to the right places for the information and then connecting people who stutter to other people who can provide support to them. Yeah, definitely. We'll include those. Yep, we're going to include all of that in the show notes so people can go there and find those links. So thank you for providing that information because I think it's so helpful. And where can people find you if anybody wanted to connect further? Yes. So Wayne State University, if you just go to Wayne State University, the website, um, type my name in, Derek Daniels, it it will come up. But also my email address, it's D-E-Daniels, all one word, D-E-Daniels at wayne.edu. Feel free to send me an email and we can chat about whatever questions you may have, but I can point you in the right direction um, if you ever need any resources. Um, I should also mention that the Stuttering Foundation of America, if you go to their website, they have listed out specialists in stuttering in every state. So you can find your state and in every state it'll list um, people who um, are specialists in stuttering in case someone was looking for a specialist in their state. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, my goodness. Well, Dr. Daniels, this has been so wonderful. I just all I can say is we need more voices like yours. So thank you for doing what you do and for finding the courage to, you know, make your way through and, and all the accomplishments you've had are so well deserved. So thank you for taking the time to be here. Thank you. I appreciate you providing this platform. The platform you have here is great. It's going to really spread awareness on a lot of really nice topics for your listeners. Oh, thanks, Dr. Daniels. Until next time, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever it is that you're listening right now. And what really makes my day is if you share or recommend the podcast to a friend. It is the greatest compliment. If you have not already, head on over to theparentingreframe.com where you can subscribe to get my weekly newsletter, Parenting Skimmed. 10 sentences delivered to your inbox every Thursday to help you parent and live a better life. It's for the parent who constantly told me, I just don't have time to read. 
make sure to come and say hi to me on Instagram at The Parenting Reframe. My DMs are always open and I love hearing from you. Until next time, this is Albiona. Albiona.